Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hi, gang. Dr. Bill Creasy here with this week's podcast. I hope all of you had a blessed Holy Week and a joyous Easter. You know, it's funny how as we get older, we associate holidays more and more with the holidays we knew growing up. When I think of Easter, I think of growing up in Pittsburgh and the change of seasons from winter to spring. Some years, Easter would greet us with snow on the ground and blustery weather. Some years with spring showers, green grass, and robins tugging up worms from freshly planted lawns. Easter, to me, recalls colorful dyed eggs, jelly beans, and yellow marshmallow peeps in Easter straw-stuffed baskets. My mother and grandmother in new dresses and hats, me and my brothers in new suits and clip-on ties, trekking off in our polished shoes to church, the altar bedecked in Easter lilies and smiling faces all around. They're great memories. But Easter is so much more. As Holy Week is the pinnacle of the liturgical year, Easter is the pinnacle of Holy Week. Easter remembers and celebrates Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is the central event of Christianity. For without Jesus' physical, bodily resurrection, Christianity is a fraud, either a deliberate lie or a naive delusion. As St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is worthless, and so is your faith. C.S. Lewis was correct when he said that Christ is the virgin-born, sinless Son of God who was crucified, buried, and raised. Or, he's not. There's not a third option. We can't claim that Jesus was a great prophet or a great moral teacher. No, either he is who he said he is, or he's a lunatic on par with a man who claims to be a poached egg. The fact is, Christianity stands or falls on the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Christ. So we might ask, what evidence do we have that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. And if he did, what does it mean? Well, first of all, we have the story of Jesus' crucifixion in graphic detail in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus' crucifixion was especially brutal. At his trial before Pilate, he was stripped naked, tied to a post, and flogged beaten nearly to death with a flagrum, multiple leather thongs embedded with lead shot or bone attached to a wooden handle. It would rip the flesh right off your bones. Jewish law limited a scourging to 39 lashes. Roman law had no such limit. Prior to the crucifixion, they might beat you for as long as they liked, or until you were unconscious. 
When Jesus struggled to carry his cross to Golgotha, about 2,000 yards or 20 football fields, he was already in hypovolemic shock from blood and bodily fluid loss. And then he was nailed to a cross where he hung on spikes driven through his hands and feet for the next six hours. In the end, a Roman soldier, to ensure Jesus' death, thrust a lance upward through his side, piercing his heart. As John writes in his Gospel, blood and water gushed forth, a sure sign that he was well and truly dead. And then he was placed in a tomb, anointed by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus with 70 pounds of aloe and myrrh and wrapped in many pounds of linen strips, enough to absorb for the next year the fluids from his decaying flesh. He went into the tomb looking like the Michelin Man. Now the idea, as some think, that he swooned on the cross or he was given a drug that made him appear to be dead, as popularized in Hugh Schoenfield's 1965 novel, The Passover Plot, is utterly laughable. For when he revived and walked out of the tomb, he would have looked like the most miserable of wretches. Why, anyone who saw him would have cried out, my God, get this man to a hospital right now. No, Jesus was most certainly dead when they placed him in the tomb. His post-resurrection appearances put to rest the other alternative, that someone stole his body, something the Jewish leadership claimed at the time, and many people still claim today. We read that early on Sunday morning, he appeared to Mary Magdalene, a very close personal friend from Galilee. And he told her to tell his disciples, minus Judas, that he was still alive. And then he appeared privately to Peter, and then to all his disciples, except for Thomas, who wasn't present at the time. In that locked upper room, he said, I'm not a ghost. Here, touch me. I have flesh and bones. Do you guys have anything to eat around here? I had a really hard weekend. He appeared to Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus, and he had dinner with them where they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. The following week, Jesus appeared to Thomas, who was now with the other disciples. Placing his fingers in Jesus' wounds, in utter shock, Thomas exclaimed, My Lord, and my God. And St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 6, the risen and glorified Christ later appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, many of whom are still alive and walking around when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in the winter of AD 54. Sometime earlier, he appeared to Paul as well. No, the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection is rock solid, perhaps more than for any other event in ancient history. Add to that the effect his resurrection had on others. It literally 
change the course of history. A small band of Jesus' disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and the others, men who lived far off in the eastern backwaters of the Roman Empire, galvanized thousands of people with the story of Jesus' resurrection. When Peter preaches his first sermon in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, A.D. 32, only 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, 3,000 people became believers. In the days that followed, the numbers increased exponentially. These were people who were there, or people who heard firsthand accounts by people they knew and trusted of the extraordinary events of Passover only three weeks before. All of the apostles, except for John, were martyred within 40 years of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And honestly, I have to believe that no one willingly dies for what they know to be a lie. If Jesus' followers knew that his resurrection was a fraud, why would they willingly embrace excruciatingly painful deaths to spread a lie? What was in it for them? Absolutely nothing. If it were a lie, why would they embrace it to the point of death? No. The empty tomb fundamentally and forever dramatically altered our understanding of reality and of our place and purpose in the world. Indeed, by AD 380, Christianity had displaced the many polytheistic religions of the ancient world with 90% of the Roman Empire embracing Christianity. So how did all this happen? Most importantly, Jesus' resurrection demonstrated that the world as we experience it in the here and now is not it. We're not simply born into this world, pass our lives here, and rot in our graves. Our death is not the end of the story. If we view the world from a modern, post-enlightenment perspective, that is what we understand. The world as we know it is it. And frankly, our modern secular worldview is the only time in human history that such thinking dominated our understanding of reality. The idea that I'm born into this world I live my life either well or poorly, I die, and within three generations I'm forgotten, and that's it, leads to the inevitable absurdity of human existence. If that's all there is, then Jean-Paul Sartre and his fellow existentialists are correct. Life is absurd and ultimately meaningless. Nothing more than a cruel joke. I watch others suffer and die. So what? In the end, it all means absolutely nothing. And I'm left to accompany the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas to not go gently into that good night, but to rage, rage against the dying of the light. But Jesus' resurrection demonstrates that the world as we experience it in the here and now is not it. There is more, much more. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ shatters 
that paradigm. Like a vector shot in from eternity, the resurrection pierces our reality, shattering the self-reflective mirror in which we see ourselves. Our lives, yours and mine, have meaning. Meaning beyond the span of our life, beyond our experience on this earth, and beyond our physical death. Through Jesus' resurrection, I view my learning, my thoughts, my relationships with those I love in a greater context, a context with eternal, limitless horizons. Frankly, the modern post-enlightenment secular view of reality is so anemic and shallow as to be insipid. It's a small box that we build around ourselves, a box that keeps us in the dark, that restricts our intellect, our thinking, and our imagination to the confines of our own self-imposed limitations. Searching for meaning in such a secular paradigm is like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that's not there. By embracing the historical fact of the resurrection, we, like Jesus himself, walk out of the tomb, a tomb of our own construction. Now, if you attended Easter Vigil Mass last night, you entered a silent, darkened, and empty church, each of us carrying one tiny candle, a pinpoint of light in a vast darkness. Today, on Easter morning, the church was aglow with light, the altar bedecked with flowers, and, if you were lucky, a full orchestra and choir playing the grand finale of Mahler's Second Symphony, The Resurrection, a prelude to what eternity holds for us. So celebrate the light, my friends, for with Jesus' resurrection, a new day has dawned. Easter affirms that the cycle of life continues, death, burial, and resurrection. This world is not it. A glorious eternity awaits us, an eternity that sparkles and shines, an eternity as vast as the universe itself. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Visit LogosBibleStudy.com to discover more ways to study with Dr. Creasy. From live classes to amazing adventures on our teaching tours, the next is coming up in May in the footsteps of St. Paul in Greece, and also online courses in the Logos Online Classroom, where all of our offerings have an average five-star, that's five-star, student review. Visit LogosBibleStudy.com to discover more and become an educated reader of Scripture. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Creasy. I'd like to turn now to your questions. And the very first question is from John C. Now, I have to admit, I know John C. He's my nephew, and he's a pastor in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, John is a great guy, a great young pastor. And here's his question. Who do you think wrote Revelation? Is there evidence that John, the gospel writer, wrote it? Is there evidence that the writer knew Jesus personally? And what do you think the writer of Revelation would think about today's readings, interpretations, 
and applications of his or her book? Great question, John. I'm proud of you to bring it up. The book of Revelation is perhaps the most mysterious and puzzling book to many people in all of Scripture. But I, th I think it's relatively easy to understand if we place it in its proper historical, cultural, and literary context. First off, to understand Revelation, we should understand that its historical and cultural context take place in the first century, the latter part of the first century. Revelation doesn't emerge in a literary or theological vacuum. It's one of many works within the genre of apocalyptic literature, works that date all the way back to the 7th century BC, like portions of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, and Zechariah. Scriptural works from the 3rd century BC through AD 70, like Daniel, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, or Matthew in the Olivet Discourse of chapter 24. The apocalyptic genre also includes many extra-biblical texts, like the Sibylline Oracles, books 3, 4, and 5, the Qumran War Scroll, 1st, 2nd, and 4th Enoch, 4th Ezra, 2nd Baruch, the 2nd century Apocalypse of Peter, the Shepherd of Hermes, and many others. So Revelation is not unique. It is the jewel in the crown of apocalyptic literature, but it has a long history behind it of this genre of literature. So understanding the genre, the apocalyptic genre, is our first step. The second step is understanding its historical context. The book of Revelation is written either during the time, uh, addressing the times of the Emperor Nero, especially the first persecution of Christians in Rome, AD 64 to 68, a persecution under Nero, which led to the Great Jewish Revolt that began in AD 66 and culminated with the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple in AD 70. That was a catastrophic, absolutely catastrophic period of history for the Jews. It could also be read in the context of later persecutions in the AD 90s. So take your pick. Elaine Pagels, a very, very good biblical scholar from Princeton University, in her book, Revelations, S plural, it's her revelations about the book of Revelation, Elaine Pagels places the context during the persecution under Nero. I would lean more toward the persecutions in the 90s. In either case, everyone living in the first century AD after Jesus, everyone living after him, believed that Jesus would return in their lifetime. St. Paul mentions it on multiple occasions. Peter mentions it in 2 Peter. Everyone thought he would return in their lifetime. He said in the Olivet Discourse, this generation will not pass away until all these things, these apocalyptic things he talks about in the Olivet Discourse, happen. This generation, his generation, will not end before all these things occur. So everyone, everyone who believed in Christ, believed during that first generation that he would return. And that's our historical context for Revelation. 
The author of Revelation is not writing about a far, far off future. The return of Christ and the end times are imminent in their eyes. So we have the literary context and we have the historical context. Now, who wrote Revelation? Well, we're told in the first chapter, John of Patmos. Well, John was a very common name. We have John the Baptist, we have the Apostle John, we have many other Johns, it was a common name. But tradition holds that our Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos, which incidentally, we'll be visiting uh, this May in our Footsteps of Paul teaching tour to Greece and the Aegean. We'll be standing at the cave where tradition holds that John wrote the book of Revelation. That should be really something to look forward to. But I'm okay with the traditional ascription to the Apostle John. Uh, Saint Irenaeus, who was a student of a student of the Apostle John, claims that John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation. Well, that's pretty close. That's pretty close indeed. So I'm okay with that ascription. It's not solid, it's not proven, but I think we can take the traditional ascription. Now, given that, given the literary genre, the historical context, and let's say it's our Apostle John, who of course would have known Jesus quite intimately, start there and begin to read the book of Revelation. As we approach those catastrophic times of persecution under Nero and the great Jewish revolt, or the later persecutions in the 90s, it seemed as if the world was coming to an end. And anyone who was a Jew living in Jerusalem at that time, the, the catastrophe was beyond imagination. Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until these things occur. And I think anyone reading the book of Revelation at the time it was written would identify the events with things that were happening at that particular time. In a very important sense, Revelation is a book of prophecy. And as I teach in my classes on the prophets, prophecy always, 100% of the time, has its application within the historical context of the person writing it. That is, whatever Isaiah is writing, he was a prophet from 740 to 686, he's addressing the threat from Assyria at that time. Always a prophet writes into his own historical context. And I think Revelation is no different. Our author, be it John or someone else, is writing into events of his time in the second half of the first century. Now, I just finished teaching a class not long ago on the book of Revelation. It's in the online classroom and sign up for it, take the class, and I go into great depth about Revelation itself. So I think today we look at theories about uh, the book of Revelation, when will it happen? Well, Jesus said, I don't know when it will happen. Only God the Father knows. So you can be sure Bill doesn't know. Our second question today is from Rudy A. And Rudy writes, in your teaching of Exodus, you say that the golden calf is an image or an icon of the Egyptian goddess Hathor. Yet, in another place, 
you refer to the golden calf as Apis. So which is it? Well, when the Israelites moved out into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, and they camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, and Moses went up on the mountain, he was there for 40 days and 40 nights, during which time God gave him the tablets of the law. Well, it was a long journey from Egypt into the Sinai, the southern portion of the Sinai Peninsula, and we had two million people. When Moses left and went up on the mountain and disappeared for over a month, these people were very afraid. Here we are out in the middle of nowhere, and my gosh, I've been to Mount Sinai several times. We've climbed it three or four times, and it is a barren, desolate area, far away from anything. These people that came out of Egypt, Egypt was the most dazzling civilization on the face of the earth. It was very sophisticated, not primitive in any way. The theology of the Egyptian gods and goddesses was as fully developed in its day as Christianity is in our day. So when Moses led the people out to meet this new God, a God that frankly the Israelites knew absolutely nothing about, because after all they had spent 400 years in Egypt, if they knew anything, anything at all, about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was the faint echo of a folktale from a long time ago. So here they are at Mount Sinai, at the foot of the mountain on which this God lives. Moses, who led them out of Egypt, disappears, and now they appear to be stranded out in the middle of nowhere, and they will all die. So what did they do? They turn to a god or a goddess that they know. The Israelites need a strong and compassionate God to get them out of this mess. So they turn to a God they've known for the past 400 years, the Egyptian goddess Hathor. Hathor had been worshipped since the Old Kingdom, around 2600 BC to 2100 BC, long before Abraham. The Israelites or Moses arrived in Egypt and that's the god they found, one of the many gods, one of the primary gods. Hathor was the daughter of Ra, the sun god, the primary god in the Egyptian pantheon, and the wife of Horus. Hathor appears in two primary iconographic forms, as a woman and as a cow, as a woman. Hathor's iconography portrays her wearing the headdress of a sun disk and a cow's horns. And she's often in Egyptian literature referred to as the golden one or she of the beautiful hair. The Greeks later associated Hathor with the goddess of love, Aphrodite. As a cow, Hathor represents motherhood. Here, Hathor suckles Hatshepsut as the god Ammon looks on. We can see this uh, in uh, a temple of Hathor along the Nile River. And in our dating system, Hatshepsut is the princess who fishes Moses out of the Nile and becomes his adoptive mother and later queen of Egypt herself. Not coincidentally, the center of worship for the Egyptian goddess Hathor was in the southern Sinai Peninsula, right where the Israelites are at Mount Sinai. So I would hold that the golden calf is an icon or a symbol of the Egyptian goddess Hathor. Apis is a more generic 
God represented as a cow. And if I said that in one of my lessons early on, well, I was mistaken. So, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. The golden calf is the goddess Hawthor. Well, thank you for listening in this week. I do hope you had a blessed Easter and you've grown closer to Christ. And I look forward to talking with you again next week. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. We hope you've enjoyed the show this week, and don't forget, go to ScriptureUncovered.com to submit your questions, and Dr. Creasy might answer them on air. That's ScriptureUncovered.com, submit your questions, and also leave us a rating and review in iTunes or wherever else you're accessing the podcast. That's the best way to help us spread the word about Scripture Uncovered. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.